What would it take to make you believe? What would it take? If you saw somebody healed from, from some very visible disability or illness right here in front of you, would you believe? If you attended a funeral here at Kirkpatrick Memorial and somehow the dead were raised from their coffin, would you believe? That's the question that Jesus tackles, particularly in the second half of this parable that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to come back to that question a little bit later in our, in our time together as we look at this passage. But it's a massive question. What would it actually take to make you believe? Let's begin at the, the start. It would be almost crucial for you to have this passage open before you this morning. Look, chapter 16, pages, page 1050. So please turn with, with me to that passage. Luke chapter 16. It's a story about two men. So this one's a very simple story in a sense. There's not an awful lot of development in the plot. Two men who live entirely different lives. One of them, if you'll excuse the Ulster expression, one of them stinking rich. This guy is loaded. You can see it in the house that he lives in. It's one of those houses when you stand at the front gate, you can, you can barely see the house because the driveway's so long. It's one of those driveways where the, the front gates are always closed. There's too much in behind there to protect. This, this man is wealthy, he's rich. It's sad though that Jesus can't say anything more about this man, there, there's no other comment. No mention of his friends or his achievements or his contribution to society. All we know about this man is that he's rich. Now, the second man, in stark contrast, has absolutely nothing. Just as Jesus paints a very quick, vivid picture of one man's wealth, he paints an equally vivid picture of this man's poverty. This man was laid at the, the rich man's gate. In the original, we're told that he was, he was thrown at the gate. He was there for all passers-by to see. He didn't have the fine clothes, the Armani suits. He didn't have the Maserati car. He had nothing. He was covered, we're told, in weeping sores. Maybe it was drugs. Maybe it was AIDS. Maybe it was just that he never really had anything decent to eat. Friday was the highlight of his week because that was the night the wheelie bins were left down at the front gate of the mansion. And he got to hook through the remains of the, the catered banquets that had happened up in the rich man's house. Two men, very different lives. It's, it's interesting then when these two men whose lives are so far apart, when Jesus brings them both together just like that, there's one thing and only one thing, really, that these two men have in common. In verse 22, we're told that the beggar died. 
Later in the same verse, we're told that the rich man died. It doesn't matter whether you have everything in the world or whether you have nothing. That's the point at which all our lives intersect. That's the thing, the one human experience that we will all share. Death really is, as they say, the great equalizer. Now, the next verses of this story are difficult. Although these two men shared a similar fate in actually dying, these next verses tell us that their final destinies are very, very different. The poor man, we're told, went to Abram's side, and that's a very, very Jewish way of saying that he went to heaven. The rich man, we're told, went to hell. Now, I need to pause here for a moment, because as soon as I mention hell, things start to go off in people's minds. If you're here with us regularly, you'll know that I don't preach about hell every week. If you're visiting with us, you may think, this guy preaches about hell every time I come, you know, because this is the first time. But I do want to, to think with you for a moment about hell. I, I have here an article that I, I found not so long ago. It was, a, it was in the Guardian newspaper, and it was a... a an article they had found in the Los Angeles Times. It's, talk, it's called, U.S. Churches Freeze Out Hell. Let me read a wee bit to you of, of why that's the case. Satan's domain no longer has pride of place in U.S. church sermons. Hell is no longer a hot topic. It's just too negative. And then the Farris some gentleman, Bill Farris, the pastor of Crown Valley Vineyard Christian Fellowship, he says that, that it just isn't sexy enough anymore. Bruce Shelley, a professor in church history at Denver Theological Seminary, it's just too negative. Churches are under enormous pressure to be consumer-oriented. Churches today feel the need to be appealing rather than demanding. U.S. churches freeze out hell. And so do a lot of British churches. You'll know that if you, if you worship with us regularly here at Kirkpatrick, we don't really have a choice, because Sunday by Sunday what we try to do is look at God's Word and let it speak. So if hell crops up in a story that Jesus is talking about, we're going to think about it for just a moment. There are a couple of things I think we need to bear in mind as we think about what Jesus is saying here. On the first hand, we need to recognize that this is a parable. It's a story that Jesus has told. It's not meant to be read as something that actually happened. So Jesus is telling this story to highlight spiritual truths. Look, look for example, at the way Jesus talks about the poor man being carried by angels to Abraham's side. That doesn't sound to me like he's trying to give an accurate description of what happens to us when we die. That we, that we will be carried by angels to Abraham's side. It seems to me that Jesus is speaking in symbols here. This isn't supposed to be a literal account of what the afterlife will be. I, I definitely want to say that on the one hand, but on the other hand, we cannot choose to just write off what Jesus says here. It seems to me that Jesus is saying some very definite things about what happens to human beings when they die. He wants us, first of all, to be sure that heaven and hell exist. 
I think if you take this passage and other passages, the Bible as a whole, those seem to me to be concrete realities. Jesus wants us to know that people in heaven and hell are aware that they're there. Okay? And he wants us to recognize that a person will be in heaven or hell based on the outcome of their life lived on this earth. I think those are are general things that we can say about hell here this morning. I want to move on from hell and I want to ask now the question that lies behind this all. Why? Why does the poor man go to heaven and the rich man go to hell? We need to understand why that's the case. Why did the rich man deserve such a dreadful punishment to spend eternity in a God-forsaken place, a place from which he could not uh, leave or escape? Why is that? What had he done wrong? Is it because he was rich? Is that why? Was it simply being rich that destined this man to hell? No, absolutely not. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's not even a hint of that in this story. I want you to think with me for a moment, okay? Lazarus, the poor man, was welcomed in heaven. By whom? By Abraham. If you read the Genesis account of the story of Abraham, you would find that Abraham died an extremely wealthy man. So it would seem a little bit strange that, that a man as wealthy as Abraham would end up in heaven if wealth itself was sinful. No, I don't think that's the answer. It's not because the man was rich. Did this man go to hell because he got his money by cheating? Because his wealth came to him from some sort of corruption, some, some dodgy dealings? Well, no. There's absolutely no mention of that in this story. It could well be that this man's wealth is entirely legitimate. Now, uh, over these last few weeks, as we've been looking at these parables, there's been one key to interpretation that I've been trying to suggest to you. There's one question we always need to ask ourselves when Jesus tells a story, one of these parables, and that's the audience question. Whom is Jesus addressing with this story? To whom is this story of the rich man and Lazarus actually addressed? Look with me at verse 14, further back in the chapter. You'll see there that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Throughout this whole chapter, he's been talking to them, and he's been talking about money. And this story of the rich man and Lazarus, it's told with one eye on these Pharisees. Look out, he's warning them, because you can't serve God and money. One commentator summarizes Jesus' teaching in this chapter just like this. He says, show me a person who's caught up in gathering together material things and in living a life of luxury, and I'll show you a hell-bound pagan. No matter how respectable they appear on the surface or how regularly they attend church, no matter how well-thumbed their Bible, they cannot serve two masters. They're going to be devoted to either one or the other. 
Look again at verse 14. The Pharisees heard Jesus preaching and they were sneering at him. By the way they reacted to Jesus' teaching, they proved where their love was. Their love was on the money side and not on the side of God. Maybe by now we're beginning to see the meaning of this story. Jesus is warning us of the danger of a life dedicated to money and to wealth. This rich man had every opportunity to use his wealth well. He didn't even have the problem that we, that we sometimes feel we have. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, I have money, but I'm not sure what to do with it. Jesus made it easy for this guy in the story. He had the beggar lying at his gate. Friends, I think the reality is that the beggar maybe lies at our gate more than we are willing to admit on occasions. Friends, there's nothing in this story that tells us that this was a bad man in any way that you and I would define that. There's not a mention of any other sin in his life. He didn't murder, he didn't steal, he didn't commit adultery. He's like so many of us. But this man went to hell. He went to hell not because of the bad things that he had done, but because of the good things that he could have, that he'd left undone. Isn't that interesting? For those of us who have grown up with an Ulster Christianity that's good on the thou shalt nots, we believe somehow that keeping our noses clean from a list of five or six major public sins makes us acceptable to God. Friends, Christian morality is a much, much, much more positive and powerful thing than that. God longs to see us active, serving Him in positive ways in our community, using our wealth to to help others. Maybe, Maybe you're like me, and as you, you think about this this morning, you're, you're unsettled by it. I, I don't think that does any harm because I think that's what Jesus intended. Being unsettled though this morning isn't going to be enough because when heaven or, and hell are at stake, we need to ask ourselves some hard questions. In response to this parable, I, I want to suggest one question in particular. For each one of us, we should be asking ourselves the question, is my Christian faith real or not? Is my life a heaven-bound life or is it not? This story gives us an opportunity to ask ourselves that question. It forces us to ask ourselves, what use am I making of my material resources? I'll make a distinction for you that might help you at this point. A person who is living their life for God understands that everything that they have in life is God's and that it's a gift and that they hold it on trust. They own nothing. They're stewards. That's one way we can think of our our wealth and and our material resources. Another way, and and probably very common way, is to say, it's mine. I earned it. 
It landed in my bank account by electronic transfer at the end of the month because of the work that I did. Friends, the first view I've described to you is the, the Christian way. It's the, the way that recognizes God's place in the center of the universe and our lives. And the other, unfortunately, is a godless, a totally godless way of thinking of what God has given to us. Let me encourage you this morning by saying I have seen many people in the short time that I've been here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, I've seen many people who understand it the first way. People who understand that everything in their lives is a gift. Everything is on trust and can be used for the glory of God. I've seen that in remarkable ways as people have used their money, as people have used their homes, as people have used other gifts that God has given them, and they've used them to bless, bless the people God brings to them. Friends, that's a very, very real test of Christian faith. If you want to know this morning how you're doing in, in the Christian life, ask yourself how you're doing on this issue. I can say that with entire confidence. I can hold that test up in front of you, because when you read the Gospels, Money is actually one of the things that Jesus talks about more than anything else. He knows that it's a, a crucial barometer of our spiritual life. What I'm doing with my money is entirely crucial. Jesus knows what we all know. You can tell an awful lot of per about a person by how they use their wealth. Friends, I want to take a few moments this morning wrapping up this, this parable, and in a sense, we're coming back to where we started at the start of this story. The first, the first half of this parable, in a sense, is quite simple and self-contained, but then it takes, for me anyway, reading it, it takes quite a strange turn. Look at verse 27. There we find that the, the rich man is begging Abraham to send a message to, to his brothers who remain alive in the world. But Abraham won't have any of it. He says, they have the prophets and they have Moses, by which Jesus means the Bible. He says, let them listen to them. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The reality of hell has connected with this rich man, and he wants to save, save other people from it. And he suggests this plan to Abraham. Abraham, go and warn my brothers. And Abraham says, no. I can't do that even if I wanted to. But they have what they need to believe. I began this morning by asking you, asking myself, all of us, a question. What would it take to make us believe? Would it be miraculous healing? Would it be raising someone from the dead? Would that convince you? No, says Jesus with this story. Jesus says that doesn't, although it sounds so appealing, although that we think that's what we want, Jesus says that's not the thing that brings people to real and living faith in Him. 
He says there's only one thing that has the power to create real and living faith, and that is our response to the Word of God. It's the Word of God. If people won't listen to Moses, the law, and the prophets, to the Bible, then they're not going to respond to anything else, not even someone rising from the dead. Friends, let me close. It's absolutely crucial that we understand what's going on here. Do you see what Jesus is saying here this morning? He's telling us that our eternal destiny depends on how we respond to the Word of God. Every time you in your own home open a Bible and read it, you stand before the gates of heaven and hell. Every time you come Sunday by Sunday, morning or evening, to hear God's Word preached here, together we stand before the gates of heaven and hell. Our eternal destiny, depending on how we respond to what God teaches us through His Word. Folks, if you haven't yet responded to Jesus Christ, if you haven't yet opened your life to Him, here's another opportunity. This morning together we have gathered around God's Word. We have heard Jesus' powerful and truthful words. Here's another chance to respond to the Word of God. And this morning we have heard Jesus talk about hell. If you have found that unpalatable, let me remind you who, who spoke those words. Jesus. Jesus loves you more than any other person in the world. Jesus loves you more than you can ever imagine. And yet he's willing to tell you about hell. Isn't that sobering? He's willing to tell you about hell because he doesn't want you to go there because he wants you to go to heaven. He wants you to go to that place that we have been learning about in a couple of the other parables, a place where there's gonna be a banquet and a feast and where people will gather together forever in joy before their loving God. Friends, we've heard the word of God. Let's think carefully about how we respond. Let us pray. <laughs> Father God, we thank you again for the wise and powerful teaching of Jesus in this parable. Lord, you really do see into our hearts and you know the reality of human life in a way that, that really throws our lives open before you. Lord, you know of how money and material wealth can have such a hold on us. Lord, we pray that this morning you'd show us what a wonderful blessing all of this can be. Set us free from any slavery that we have to money. Make us people who use our wealth to bless 
and to give and to, to shine light for Jesus Christ. Lord, you've reminded us again this morning of the, the importance of listening to your word. Not only of listening, but of responding. Lord, for those of us who have heard this a, a thousand times, where it's just water off a duck's back, Lord, would you break into our lives? Would you do what you need to do in us and through us to open us to your word? And Lord, make us people who respond wholeheartedly to you. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness and your grace, even in this warning this morning. Help us to respond, we pray. Amen.